been thinking for some time now what book to go through of the Bible next, and I uh, wanted to do Obadiah for a while, probably because his book starts with an O, and no other book of the Bible does. Uh, but it really isn't isn't really, not, nobody ever talks about it at all, so I wanted to do that. It's only 21 verses, so it didn't take long to get through it, actually. You should, by the way, Old Testament, they tell you, and this is, and I agree, you should take a longer passage as a general rule rather than a shorter passage, so you'll wonder why I'm not doing two verses every week. It's because that's the nature of narrative uh, style in the Old Testament. It's better to grab a bigger chunk and go through the whole thing so you can see the big picture. As a general rule, sometimes that may not always be the case. But where do we go next? What book do we go to next? I talked to Mike about this, and it's, after I was commanded by Ryan to do the book of Judges, I don't know, a year ago, whenever that was, uh, I talked to Mike about what to do next, and uh, we thought it would be best to continue in chronological order. So we're going to go through, we're going to attempt to go through 1 Samuel next. That's the plan, 1 Samuel. Now let's get a little bit of a timeline as to where we are at this time in the Bible. Uh, let's go back to the beginning. Gen- Genesis through Deuteronomy, as you know, talks about creation, the first five books of the Bible, creation. Goes all the way through the time when Israel uh, came out of going to, going to Egypt, and they came out of the Exodus, and they go in the wilderness, and they wander there for 40 years. And, and Moses uh, is their leader, and then uh, Moses dies eventually, and then we go with the, the leadership changes, and is, the baton is passed to Joshua, who becomes the next leader. <clears throat> and largely under Joshua, the campaign to take over the land of Canaan is successful, as they conquer much of the land of Canaan. Not totally, but then Joshua dies, and Israel begins to, the next generation, Israel begins to fall back into idolatry. They begin to fall into idolatry, and then they go away from the Lord. The Lord punishes them again and again by sending four nations against them, and to, uh, he sells them into slavery, basically. And then Israel cries out for deliverance again and again, and then God delivers them by sending a judge. And that was the, the pattern. That cycle is repeated over and over in the book of Judges. We finished Judges, and you can see as we went through Judges what a disaster Israel made of things there. And then, you know, and, and were it not for the grace of God in Judges, by the way, and his intervention, constant intervention, who knows what would have happened to the nation of Israel. Only by the grace of God did they survive that. And then we went through the small book of Ruth, and the reason I did that was because Ruth also takes place during the time of the Judges in that, in that context, in that setting. And there we saw how the Lord sovereignly brought Ruth a foreigner from Moab, uh, into his land, and she married Boaz, and through that union ultimately came the line of David and then the Messiah uh, in the distant future in the New Testament. And so that brings us to 1 Samuel. Now let's start with some brief introductory matters as we look into the book of 1 Samuel. First of all, the original makeup of 1 Samuel. Originally in the Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel First and Second Samuel, rather, were only Samuel. There was only one book. It was called Samuel, or the Book of Samuel, and that was it. There was no First and Second Samuel back at that time. And then the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the, Old, the Hebrew Old Testament, came along, and they divided the book up into First and Second Samuel because it was so large to carry around in scrolls. They divided it up in two books, First and Second Samuel. And then in 1516. The Hebrew Bible, after all those years, 1516 A.D., they divided the books up into two, and they became First and Second Samuel. The reason the book is called Samuel is because the main character of the book is Samuel in the early chapters of the book, for sure, and his influence is felt throughout the, the, the book. And then 
uh, centuries later even, even Jeremiah, and Jeremiah 15 says this, the Lord said to Jeremiah, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart, heart would not be with his people. So in that passage, Moses is listed alongside Samuel. I mean, that's how far-reaching his influence was in the Bible. Thought of highly, placed alongside Moses as the leader of God's people. And so we ask the question next, naturally, who wrote First Samuel? And you're probably thinking, that's obvious. Samuel wrote, must have written First Samuel. The book is named after him, after all. But the fact of the matter is, as you read through 1 Samuel, you're ne you were never given any information as to who wrote the book. It doesn't say, this book was written by Samuel, Samuel wrote this down, that kind of thing. We do know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and that God is the author, ultimately. But we really don't know who the, who the human author is. It's not known. Now, there is a verse in 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 29, 29, it's very interesting. It says in 1 Chronicles 29, 29, now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, Samuel the prophet, and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. It could be that the book, books of first and second Samuel come from those writings of Samuel, uh, Gad, and Nathan. Um, could be that that's where the material is drawn from as far as that's concerned. Obviously we know that God inspired his word. Samuel dies in 1 Samuel chapter 25, so he didn't write anything after that, I'm taking it, uh, including 2 Samuel, but the bottom line is no one really knows, it's been debated for centuries, no one really knows who the author of 1 Samuel is. Uh, when was the book written? Well, due to the certain statements in the book, it looks like it was written uh, in, in the, at least the 10th century B.C., some, some people, you know, I, I realize that when it comes to dates, people, most people don't care about dates, especially when you go into B.C. and you talk about 10th century and things like that. It goes through one ear and out the other, I'll tell you anyway. Probably written after the kingdom was divided, kingdom of Israel. Israel became a divided kingdom after the reign of Solomon. The actual division takes place in 1 Kings chapter 12, if you want to read about it there. And when the kingdom was divided... It was divided into the northern kingdom, which became known by the name of Israel, generally speaking. The southern king, kingdom became known by the name of Judah. Israel made up the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom. And there's many references in 1 Samuel to Judah and Israel as almost as if they're separate nations, even though at that time, the time when it's taking place in 1 Samuel, these events are taking place, they're not separate. There's no divided kingdom in 1 Samuel. That doesn't happen until 1 Kings. For example, 1 Samuel 11.8 <clears throat> talks about the sons of Israel and the men of Judah, almost as if they're separate, because it's written from a post-divided um, kingdom perspective looking back, and they're looking at it that way. 1 Samuel 18.16 says, but all Israel and Judah love David. See how they're divided like Israel and Judah? 2 Samuel 19.43, the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, and they said, we have ten parts in King David, in, in the king. In other words, ten tribes, Israel. Therefore, we also have more claim on David than you do. And then in second, or rather, First Samuel 27:6, it says, "So Achish, Achish gave David Ziklag, the city of Ziklag, in, in the territory of the Philistines. That day, therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. See, it's pointing to a future day and talking about the kings of Judah. So." Samuel is written from a post-divided kingdom perspective. It's written later on in history, looking back over the events that took place. 
probably written between the 10th century B.C. and 8th century B.C. But the time of the events that are actually happening in 1st and 2nd Samuel take place from approximately 1100 B.C. to 971 B.C. Again, I know most people don't care about dates. So the book of Samuel was written after the fact, is what I'm saying. Furthermore, it was a time of transition taking place in, in Samuel. Um, judges and Ruth took place during the time of the, of, of the judges. Can you guess when the time of, can you, can you guess what time Samuel took place, at least at the, at the beginning? It took place during the time of the judges, when it began as a book. We can't seem to get away from those judges, can we? Couldn't get away from them in the book of Judges. We couldn't get away from them in the book of Ruth. We can't get away from them in the book of 1 Samuel. How long will this go on, right? In fact, there's two more judges mentioned in 1 Samuel. Do you know that? We thought the last judges were guys like, you know, Samson and that crowd, but there's two more judges mentioned. The first one is Eli. The second one is Samuel. They were judges also. 1 Samuel, we're in the book of 1 Samuel starting it tonight. 1 Samuel 4.18 says this. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years, so Eli was a judge. And then it says in 1 Samuel 7.15, Samuel, now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So the leadership at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel is still with the judges. And then from there, we transition to the rule of kings as we go on in 1 Samuel. Now what's the purpose of 1 Samuel? Why was it written? Well, historically it was written to... Uh, talk about, number one, the rise of king, the kings in Israel, how Saul was established to be the first king, for example, and the kingship from then on. And then secondly, 1 Samuel was written to trace the life of David uh, until he becomes, actually David doesn't become king until uh, 2 Samuel. He's anointed as a king in 1 Samuel, doesn't become an actual king until 2 Samuel. So we're tracing the life of David prior to his actually becoming a king in the book of 1 Samuel. That's what it's about. Spiritually, the purpose are to, are, to, are to show the kingship of God. God's the real king. He's the real king overall. And also to talk about God's providential guidance, to talk about God's sovereign will and power. These are some of the ideas that are being portrayed in the book of 1 Samuel. Now let me give you a basic, brief, kind of an outline of 1 Samuel, just so you can stick it in your head. This is the easiest way to do this, I think. There's three main characters in Samuel. This is pretty simple. Samuel... Saul and David, all right? Three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel is the king maker. He's the guy anointing people to be kings. Saul is the king that was rejected. And then David is the man after God's own heart. He becomes the next king after Saul. And so here's the outline. Primarily, the first eight chapters of Samuel, 1 Samuel, deal with Samuel, okay? Now, there's other things going on in the first eight chapters of 1 Samuel, but primarily... Put, put it in your mind that this is about Samuel, okay? And then chapters 9 through 15 talks about Saul. Basically, he's the first king of Israel. 9 through 15, Saul. And then chapters 16 through 31 talk about Saul and David and their interaction, or their, or I should say Saul's persecution of David, maybe. Chapters 16 through 31. So you have those three basic divisions of the book. The book revolves basically around three people. There's other characters, obviously, in 1 Samuel. Those are the main three. So let's get started in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, several times in this scripture we encounter a similar story, a story alluded to by Mike, interestingly enough, in the passage this morning when it talked about barren women. We have this story in the Bible often of a childless woman 
a woman who is unable to bear children. You see that again and again in the scriptures. Mike talked about in his passage in Luke, there's going to be a time when it's going to be said, blessed is those, are those who are barren and, and not the other way around. But we already know from our previous studies or sermons you've heard that back in the ancient Near East, it was a curse to be without a child. It was a real curse for a woman to not have a child. She felt the great pressure upon her to have a child. It was just considered a horrible thing. Now, our generation doesn't care about that at all, right, with abortion and all. Back then, it was a different story. When Jacob's wife, Rachel, finally conceived, she, she was childless. And when she finally conceived in Genesis 30, 23, Rachel says this, God has taken away my reproach. He's finally taken away my reproach because I was under that curse, she felt like. That was uppermost in the woman in the mind of a woman that had not yet conceived or not yet born a child, she thought about this reproach that was on her. Now, the biblical view of children is that children are a blessing and, and not a curse. Get yourself away from the American mindset, okay, <laughs> about this. And what is the biblical mindset about children? The biblical mindset is that they are a blessing, not a curse. Let me just read to you Psalm 127, verse 3. Psalm 127, verse 3 says... Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. You ever think of it like that? The fruit of the womb is his reward, is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Psalm 128 says much the same. So in light of that view that children are a blessing, you can imagine how women who were childless back then felt. They felt like they were not blessed, right? They felt like they were cursed under reproach. And we encounter a woman like this in 1 Samuel. Her name is Hannah. And tonight we're going to look at the difficult circumstances that Hannah endured. And I believe the Lord wants to teach us through this story of Hannah how to deal with our circumstances when life becomes overwhelming. When life becomes overwhelming, how do we deal with our circumstances? I think we can learn something from Hannah tonight have a simple uh, outline. First of all, Hannah's bitterness. And secondly, Hannah's prayer. First of all, let's look at Hannah's bitterness in, in the first ten verses. Look at verse 1. It says there, Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, <coughs> son of Tahu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. By the way, all the Hebrew names I've Americanized, as you're used to hearing, right? found out if you say a name in Hebrew, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, trust me, but if you do that, boy, everybody's thrown for a loop. They don't know what you're talking about. So let's just keep them Americanized, all right? Verse 2, Elkanah had two wives. The wife, the name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from this, his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, therefore, or however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah... Why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh, 
Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So we're introduced to Hannah's family here and Hannah's circumstances in the opening verses of chapter 1. It talks in verse 1 about Elkanah being from the hill country of Ephraim. That was a happening place back in the time of the judges. It seems like a lot of things took place in the hill country of Ephraim. That's in the central part of Israel. Do you remember Micah, the idolater back in Judges 17? He was from the hill country of Ephraim. That's where he lived. Do you remember the Danites, that wicked tribe that came up to and stopped at Micah's house in Judges 17? They ended up in the hill country of Ephraim as well. And do you remember the cold-hearted Levite who basically, after his wife was killed, cut up his wife and sent her in 12 pieces throughout Israel in Judges 19, the crazy time of Judges? He lived in the hill country of Ephraim. So a lot of activity takes place there during these years, and, this, and, and Elkanah is from this place. You can see his descendants in verse 4 trace back to four generations. Well, verse 2 we have a little bit of a problem here. It says that, that Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Now that shows us that, that Elkanah was a man of some wealth because in reality, only those who were wealthy at that time would have more than one wife. They were polygamists. Now normally it was kings who became polygamists because they were wealthy and they had a harem or they had many wives. But keep in mind that the, the, the norm in the Old Testament is monogamy, not polygamy. That's normal. And this is not the first... And by, the, by the way, God never endorses polygamy. He never did endorse it. His rule, his way is monogamy, okay? One man, one woman. Now, this is not the first time in the Bible that polygamy shows up. In Genesis chapter 4, Lamech, it says, had two wives. And then uh, Jacob, we know, had more than one wife. We know in Judges that Gideon had several wives. Uh, we know that later on David and Solomon would be polygamists, as also other kings were. So let me ask you a question. Does that make it right? Does the Old Testament endorse polygamy? Well, in Genesis 2.24, the Lord sets up the standard for marriage. And he says very clearly there at the beginning, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's it. One man one woman, one flesh, right? Jesus repeated that command in Matthew 19. He endorsed it as well. Paul repeats it, the command in Genesis in 1 Corinthians 6. He endorses the same idea. In Deuteronomy 17, it's talking about the future kings of Israel, and it says there, hey, when, when you guys you know, decide to have a king one day, I don't want the kings multiplying wives. Among other things, he tells them not to do that. He makes it very clear not to do that. In 1 Kings 11, we know that Solomon had 700 wives, right? 300 concubines? And guess what happened to Solomon? It said his wives turned away his heart from the Lord and turned them to idols because he married all kinds of foreign women who came from backgrounds uh, that they worshipped idols. So they came into his life, like the first woman he married was from Egypt, right? The daughter of Pharaoh. They came into his life, and guess what? They practiced idolatry, and Solomon, after a while, caved in to idols. And not only could polygamy lead to idolatry, it could cause great friction in the home as well, as we can see, as we will see in this chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 1 tonight. Now, the question is, why did God allow polygamy to continue? Why did he do this? Well, could we not ask the same question about divorce? Why did God allow divorce? 
Well, that's strange. That's interesting because the Pharisees asked that question of Jesus in Matthew 19. They said, then why did Moses permit, and the law permit a man to divorce? And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart. That's why. Because your hearts are hard. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. See that? From the beginning, that's not, that wasn't the plan to divorce. The plan is to, for marriage for a lifetime. Not divorce. It's never the plan. That's never God's plan. It's for marriage for a lifetime. And by the way, it wasn't God's plan from the beginning for polygamy either. You could use the same reasoning. The fault doesn't lie with the Lord. The fault is ours, right? We can't blame God for our sin. We have, that's on us. We have to own up to it. In fact, we could just as well ask the same question. Why does, why does God allow any kind of sin at all? But again, the hearts of people in the world are hardened, and so sin is rampant in the world. That's on us. It's always been the story throughout history. We're all sinners, right? Sinners from birth. That's what we do. And that's, of course, not what God wants. But the good news is, in spite of all that, the Lord sent Christ to die for sins. He sent Christ to die for sins. Jesus is the answer, the remedy for sins. As he says in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That's why he came. But God's original design was for one man and one woman to come together in holy matrimony. And not for one man and one man to come together either, by the way. Or one woman and one woman to come together either. That's not his plan either. So Elkanah is living in opposition to the standards set up by God. Now, this is not meant to be some you know, exhaustive study on polygamy. There's other things we could talk about, and we will see later on in the Bible. But it's something to think about since the matter is before us in 1 Samuel here. So Elkanah had two wives, we see. And it could be, by the way, that Elkanah married a second wife because his first wife didn't have children. And he wanted, you know, progeny. He wanted children to carry on his name. And so he could have married a second one for that reason. Nevertheless, he's disobeying God's plan. Now, additionally, in verse 2, we are told that Hannah is barren. Hannah, the, the one wife, is barren, has no children. Penina is, has children. Remember that this is a curse not to have children back in that day. Everybody looks down upon the people that don't have children. That sets the stage for the story tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, Elkanah made it a, a, an annual habit to leave his town and to travel to a place called Shiloh. That's verse 3. The purpose was to sacrifice to the Lord, to worship the Lord. Now, that's unusual for the time of Judges because it was a time when people were steeped in idolatry, right? We saw that in the book of Judges. You know, it was kind of a spiritual free-for-all going on in Judges, as we saw. Um, in fact, when we were going through Judges 17 through 21, I kept thinking of that phrase, the wild, wild west, you know? It was like living in the wild, wild west spiritually. There was more spiritual outlaws in the land than there were godly people. It was just nuts. Every man doing that which was right in his own eyes. Remember that? So Elkanah is, although disobedient in one area, nevertheless he desires to worship the Lord. By the way, we've seen people in Judges who desired to worship the Lord, but also desired to participate in idolatry as well. Remember that? Remember we talked about the word syncretism? That idea that people are blending the worship of God together with the worship of idols. You kind of throw them all together in one big melting pot and do all of it. And that's what they were doing there. Well, I don't think that Elkanah was an idolater. And I do think he wanted to worship the Lord. But Elkanah is like us. We want to worship the Lord, but we want to hold on to something that is displeasing to the Lord at the same time, right? That's the problem. So why go to Shiloh every year? Why did he do this? 
Well, the law required that all males, all adult Israelite males, go uh, to uh, worship the Lord three times a year on different feasts. That's written back in the Law of Moses. The Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Booths. And so they had to take, participate in these three annual feasts. What the feast the festival was here, the feast here, we don't know. It doesn't tell us what it was. We do know it took place at Shiloh. Shiloh may have been, nobody knows for sure, it may have been 15 miles north of where Elkanah lived. It wasn't terribly far away. Shiloh was the place of the location of the Ark in those days, Ark of the Covenant, and the place where the tabernacle was. Now, how do we know that? Well, Joshua 18.1 says that Shiloh was the place where the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, was set up. It says that in Joshua 18.1. And then in Joshua, or Judges 18.31, where that's confirmed, Judges 18.31, because it says that the house of God was at Shiloh in those days. And then in Judges 21.19, it says there is a feast of the Lord from year to year at Shiloh. So at that time, you know, later on in history, the temple is set up in Jerusalem and all that, but not now. The place to worship is the centralized place to worship was Shiloh. <clears throat> and it was abused, too, by the way, in the days of the judges. Well, verse 3, we're introduced to three characters. <clears throat> and they are Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. It says Hophni and Phinehas were two sons of Eli. They were priests of the Lord there. <clears throat> now, Eli was the, the main priest, or maybe he was the high priest. His two sons were kind of like the junior priest, the, ju- the priest in training. And... Uh, by the way, they're, they're only introduced here, these two guys, these two sons. And then we don't hear about them for a while. And many times when you're reading your Bible, you'll see people introduced. And then you don't see them for a while. They're introduced here to let us know they're going to figure on, they're going to figure into the story later on. And we'll come back to these guys. By the way, I'll speak more about the sons of Eli when we get to chapter 2 in a couple of weeks. And so they're introduced here, though. Now, verse 4 describes... Elkanah's normal practice when they went to this feast, they would sacrifice uh, animals at the feast, and then they would eat of the sacrifice. He would give portions of the food to his family. They would eat of it. In verse 4 also, we find out that it wasn't just a couple of children Penina had, by the way. It was several. This makes it all the matter all the, matter, all the worse. It says, notice verse 4, it talks about Penina and his wife, or Penina, his wife, and all her sons and all her daughters. My goodness, she's got several sons and daughters, not just a couple. And so the situation is worse than we first thought even. Penina is extremely blessed with many children. And that was a huge blessing back then, whereas Hannah has no children. You can only imagine how she felt, right, under the circumstances back in that day. But of the two wives that Elkanah had, he especially loved Hannah. She was his favorite. And by the way, that's what happened in polygamous relationships. One of the two wives was loved more than the other. You've seen that in other places in the Bible. And that created a host of problems. So Elkanah loved Hannah the most. And it says here that he loved her and, uh, in verse 5. And when they would have this sacrifice in Shiloh, he would give everybody a portion of food in the family. But to Hannah, it says he would give a double portion of the food. Now, that's an interesting phrase, double portion, because literally in Hebrew, that that phrase is rendered like this. He would give her, and this is what it really says, one portion of two noses. One portion of two noses is what it says, which is a very strange phrase as you read it. That could mean a double portion. It could mean a select portion. It could mean a choice portion of the animal. We could be talking about two animals, and she got the best of both. 
I'm not totally sure what it means, really. I don't think anybody else is either. But whatever it means ex- exactly, we know one thing for sure, that Elkanah is favoring Hannah by going the extra mile for her and giving her this special portion. Now, in verse 5, we find out the reason for Hannah's barrenness. This is very interesting. Why is Hannah barren? Verse 5, look what it says. It says, but the Lord, at the end of the phrase, at the end of the verse, but the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. Once again, we see the sovereignty of God in in the affairs of life. He even has, God does, ultimate control over the womb. We see that in Psalm 139 as well, where we're fearfully and wonderfully made, God superintending over the birth. Now, now, you know, this, this is mentioned elsewhere. For example, Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was barren also, said back in Genesis 16 too, she said, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She attributed her barrenness to the fact that the Lord was the one preventing her from bearing children. And then in Genesis 30, Rachel, who's also barren, gets mad at Jacob. She's frustrated because she doesn't have children, so she gets mad at her husband. And she says this, give me children or else I die. Think about that. You're you're the husband. The wife says, hey, we don't have children. Give me children or else I die. And Jacob gets mad at her and he says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? I'm not God. I don't control everything here. God's sovereign is what he's saying in effect. So Hannah's ability to, inability rather, to bear children was no accident. It was the plan of God for her. Now, it was not an easy plan, was it? Not an easy plan. It was not a plan that she would have chosen, but it was the plan that God chose for her for certain reasons at this time. Now, the Lord often does that, doesn't he? We want our, our road in life to be smooth and easy, don't we? We don't want any problems. I mean... We don't want problems, problems, as one of the rappers said in that USF um, concert we had last year. We don't want any problems. But life, God brings difficulties in our life. He brings trials into our lives. Now, why does he do that? Does he want us to be miserable? Is that his goal? So we can be absolutely miserable? No, I think his purpose is that we might, he's using difficulties and trials in our lives so we can be more, we can be more conformed to the image of Christ. So we can be learn to depend on him totally. So we cannot depend on ourselves. Even in Hebrews 5.8, it says even, he, even Christ, listen to this, even Christ learned obedience from the things which he suffered, which is amazing. Our normal reaction to difficulties in life is to resent God, isn't it? To resent his sovereignty. Why is God being unfair to me? That's what we think a lot of times. And I'm no different than you. By the way, I don't want any, I'm not especially looking for pain in my life. I'm not looking for gut-wrenching trials. I don't especially want them to come. I'm sympathetic to the, Lord, to, to the people who are going through difficulties, by the way, as all of us should be. But let me say this. I think the Lord puts us in situations a lot of times to show us, you know, to, make, to bring us to the end of our rope, to show us that we don't have the ability to, to take care of our, our problems always, to show us that we need to be in total dependence upon him. I think that's why he does this. The starting point for the Lord's work in our life is to bring us to this place of helplessness, even hopelessness in our resources. So we don't trust in our resources. We can't fix the situation. We can't fix the circumstances to our advantage. We can't do it. And God brings us to that point. And I think that's what he does to his people oftentimes. And it looks like Hannah had suffered. Uh, By the way, it looks like she suffered for a long time because based on the number of children Penina had, 
uh, probably some years she was going through this. The Lord made it impossible for her to conceive. That's what it says. The Lord made her barren. That's what it says. He just as easily could have made it easy for her to conceive as he did difficult for her to conceive. But he chose to do this for Hannah. He chose to have her to walk the road under construction, the one full of potholes, right, instead of the easy, smooth road. And that's, what she, that's the road she traveled. And that's what God chose her for. No props under her. She's just, you know, in difficult circumstances. But that is when the Lord often does something great. When someone is in those kind of circumstances, the Lord is able to take that person and do something with them because now they're in a place that they've been humbled before God. But it's going to get worse before it gets better, by the way, in this chapter. In verses 6 and 7, we see Penina irritating the fire out of Hannah, right? Verse 6, it says her rival, that's Hannah's rival, the rival wife, Penina. She's become a rival. They're in the same family, but this is the rivalry going on here. Her rival, it says, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Now, so Penina is provoking Hannah bitterly. She's irritating her. She's tormenting her almost as if she's her enemy. They're not friends in this whole family. This, what do they call that when families are crazy? What's the word that people use all the time? No, another word. Dysfunctional. Yeah. This is a dysfunctional family right here. This is a crazy family right here, and they're, and they're at war with each other. She's... They, they should have shown compassion to each other. You know, it should have been, the, the, it should have been uh, Penina who said, "I'm sorry that you don't have children. I'm gonna, you know, you can, you know, let's let's get together and we'll pray together and all." No, none of that. She's going after her, right? And it's intense. <laughs> you see the wording in verse six. She provoked her bitterly to irritate her. The word bitterly has to do with anger, by the way. She's making her not only sad, she's making her mad, angry. And the word irritate is a very strong word of emotion. It means to thunder, literally. Penina wanted to thunder out against Hannah. And so she's persecuting Hannah relentlessly. And it's, it's just a horrible thing. And not only was this hatred displayed by Penina intense, it was also constant and unyielding. It happened every year, it says, especially when they made their annual pilgrimage to Shiloh. She's, she's at her every year. It's so bad that Hannah would break down and cry and she'd lose her appetite even. Now think about this for a minute. <clears throat> They're on the way to worship the Lord, right? They're going to Shiloh in this annual trek they make to, to worship the Lord. And all this meanness is taking place, this, this, this bitter, bitter um, you know, resentment and provocation by Penina is taking place against Hannah as they're on their way to worship, right? Has that ever happened to you? You and your family are... On your way to church, and the family's, everybody's shaking their head, yes. <laughs> the family's bickering, and they're fighting, fighting. You know, before you get to church, right, you're at the house, people are getting ready, the family's getting ready, the kids, are getting, the kids aren't getting ready. The kids are losing their shoes, and all this is going on. And you're mad at each other, and fighting, and you're yelling, and impatient, and everybody's upset, and the kids are upset, they're crying, the baby, what's his diaper before you get ready to walk out the door, and ruins the new dress you bought her, and all that, and everybody's frustrated. And what happens when you arrive at church? Do you think you're going to worship God? You're all frustrated and angry and impatient. You know, I'm sure nobody here has ever gone through that, right? <laughs> nobody here has ever backed out of there, been in their driveway, you know, getting ready to get in the car, and they're arguing with each other in front of the neighbors, you know. 
Everybody out there. Yeah, all the pagan neighbors are out there. They're not going to church, right? The Christian family's going to church. They're all dressed in suits and nice dresses, and they're fighting each other, right? Have you ever done that? And you leave your Bible on top of the car as you travel down, and it ends up on 56th Street somewhere. My brother used to do that all the time. That's what's happening here. This family is going to worship the Lord. Oh, they're going to worship the Lord now. But Penina is spewing forth venom against Hannah. She hates her guts. She's persecuting her. How do you think her worship went at Shiloh, by the way? Think she worshiped the Lord? I don't get the impression she even knew the Lord from the way she's acting. And so with all this going on, Elkanah decides, I'm going to comfort my wife, Hannah. That's admirable he's doing that in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Now, in Ruth 4.15, if you look at Ruth chapter 4, verse 15, remember the neighbors of uh, Naomi said about Ruth, they said, hey, Naomi, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. Better to have her than even seven sons. Elkanah takes that to the next level, and he says, hey, I'm better than you than ten sons. So he thinks maybe that's a comforting thought, but I think it went over about as good as a lead balloon, right? I don't think she was comforted at all by that. I think she still doesn't have any child, right? She still wants a child, so I think I do commend him for trying, though. I think we should we should encourage people definitely. We should, you know, no matter how pitiful of a job, I've never had the job. By the way, I've never had the gift of comforting people. I don't. I don't Mike probably has that, he, you know, but I don't think I have that really. But nevertheless, you should try to encourage people anyway no matter how pitiful of a job you do of it. You know, you may not have the gift of showing mercy in Romans 12, but nevertheless, we still need to show mercy to people, right? Now, look, in verse 9, we're introduced to Eli officially, and uh, his name was only mentioned in passing before, but now we're introduced to him. He's sitting at the seat at the doorpost of the temple. Now, the real temple was not built until Solomon became king. It's not talking about that temple. It wasn't built in this day. It's a word referring to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting at this time, probably because it's coming, it's looking back in time, back to that time, and they're using a word that was in to be in a future time, but they call this the temple at the time. And Eli is sitting in his seat. Now that seat is not just any seat. That word seat there means throne or it means a seat of honor. Eli held a place of honor as a priest, not only as a priest, but also as a judge. He was a judge. He had authority from God to be in that position. So he held the seat of honor. So after eating and drinking at the festival, Hannah goes to the house of the Lord. Eli's there, and and there we see Hannah in great distress. Great distress. Now, she reminds me of another woman in the book of Ruth, and that was Naomi, right? You remember after the death of Naomi's husband and two sons, she becomes a very bitter woman. Her own testimony in Ruth 1.20 is this. She says to the neighbor woman in Bethlehem, she says, Do not call me Naomi anymore. The word Naomi means pleasant or sweet or something to that effect. Don't call me that. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter because the Lord, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. So Hannah was, just in the same way, Hannah was was bitter over her circumstances. However, thankfully, Hannah didn't stay uh, in that situation. Because in verses 11 to 18, we have Hannah's prayer. Let's look at that. Verse 11 says, She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. 
Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of the, my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now we come into verse 11, and Hannah is sorrowful. She's desperate. She's in tears. She's at a very low point in her life. And so what does she do? She goes to the Lord in prayer. In fact, she makes a vow to the Lord in verse 11. You can see she's very humble, right? Before God, she says, I'm a woman who's in affliction. And then she calls herself God's maidservant uh, twice. And that word maidservant is a term, to use to fe- a term used to female slaves. And that's what she's describing ser- herself as. It's a term of humility, a term of submission. She's submitting herself to God at this point, and she says, Lord, I'm your slave, but please give me a son. She prays for a son. And then she makes a promise that she'll give God her son all the days of her life if he'll do that. Now, that promise is in all likelihood a Nazarite vow. Now, it may not have been, but it looks to me like it was. The vows for Nazarites are found in Numbers chapter 6. Remember, they couldn't shave their head, among other things, like Samson. He was the last Nazarite we saw. By the way, Samson didn't do a very good job of being a Nazarite. He was kind of more of a breaker of Nazarite vows than a keeper of the vows. But, but here Hannah is promising to give the Lord her son all the days of his life. Now, in number six, when a person took a Nazarite vow, it was usually for a certain length of time, and then the vow would end. But here the mother of Samuel says, I'm going to give my child to you all the days of my life. And she says, no razor will ever come on his head. Now, I don't know what happened with that. It never tells us anything in Samuel, I don't think, of Samuel growing long hair, of Samuel never cutting his hair. It never makes an issue of it at all. But I do know this. Samuel served the Lord all the days of his life. He had a godly mother, didn't he? That's very important, a godly mother. And so so, um, Hannah is praying in the... the, uh, the tabernacle here, and Eli's watching her pray. He's watching her. He sees her lips moving. She's not saying any words. She's speaking from her heart. So in verse 13, he assumes one thing. She's drunk. This woman is in my tabernacle, and she's drunk. So he rebukes her in verse 14. You know, it reminds me of Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the, the apostles were preaching in another language they had never learned, and the people said, these men are drunk. And they weren't drunk. They were preaching the word of God, right? You know, we need to be careful that we don't accuse people of something until we know all the facts. That's how rumors get started, too. We, we, we miss, it's easy to misunderstand situations with people. Be very careful about that. So Hannah protests in verse 15. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm a woman who's oppressed in spirit. Literally, I'm, it's, I'm severe in spirit. I'm having a hard time. My life is hard. It's difficult. Things are difficult for me. And so she pours out her soul to God and pleads with God, and that's exactly what she should do in her circumstances, right? It's the best place, the best place to go when you're in agony of spirit is to the Lord. That's the best place to go and pour out your soul to him. 
In verse 16, she says, don't consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. That phrase has to do with someone who fails to give God his proper respect or fails to give someone else their proper respect. But Hannah never did this. She was showing God the greatest of respect by turning to him. And she never respected, disrespected anybody else. Penina did. Penina was always disrespecting her, but not the other way around. But she prayed because she was in difficult circumstances. So Eli grants his blessing to her in verse 17, and the Lord's blessing to her in verse 17. He says, the Lord grant you that you have a, a child. And she cheers up. She gets her appetite back. She's no longer sad. Now, we're going to stop here for the night. But let me say this. I don't know how things are going for you tonight. I don't know what your circumstances are. You may be coasting along in life, and may, the road may be very smooth for you right now. Or you may be in great distress in your life or distressed over some issue in your life. Or maybe you're distressed at something that happened in the past and it's been ongoing for a while now. Now, there's one of two ways you can go with that. Either you can remain bitter about your circumstances or you can turn to the Lord. You can do what Hannah did. You can turn to the Lord. You can pour out your soul to him about your circumstances and go to God you can bring him every grief, every pain, every distress, every problem that's on your heart because God hears the cries of his people, doesn't he? He's a gracious God. And he's, he's the one you should go to. Now, others may try to comfort you like Elkanah did. Maybe they'll fail at that. Maybe they'll succeed. But you need to encourage yourself in the Lord your God. One of my favorite verses, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God, or he found strength in the Nazbe, it says, in the Lord his God. God stands ready to hear his people, ready to help his people who are hurting. He's the one that brings trials into our life. He, he's the one that closed the womb. He sovereignly brought this about. But he brings these trials into our life so we will be put down on our face, so we'll have to look up to God and not to be dependent upon anything, any resources in our own life. That's why he does it. So we need to learn total dependence upon God. As we close, look at, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll close with these reading of these verses. Hebrews 4. Verse 13, verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 describes the understanding God, the understanding compassionate Christ that we serve. This is a God that we can go to and that God will help us. Hebrews 4, 14. And we'll close with this. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray that we will, be, we will learn from Hannah's uh, circumstances, Lord, when we get into a tough circumstance in life, any circumstance in life, we pray all will turn to you, not become bitter, angry, frustrated, and all that, Lord, which is easy to do. We pray that you'll give us the grace to turn to you and to find our strength and help in helping you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.